We are going to continue right on in our study in the book of Genesis. We have been here since the first of the year, and we will be here for a bit longer. Hopefully you're not, you're not tired of it yet. Just a quick recap. We have looked in the beginning when things were beautiful and good and right. God put things in the right order. If you're watching online with us, joining us online, we have been studying this, and we've been looking at God's perfect design. We're calling this series Origin. We're trying to get back to God's perfect design, all right? We can try to reinvent the will if we want to, or we can go back to a tried and true method. When God put this world in order, it was beautiful, it was good, it was right, it was perfect, okay? Somehow in there, chapter three, verses one to seven, when man decided to live without God and decided to do it their own selves and not consult God, and literally took God out of the conversation, we talked about that several weeks back now, in chapter, in fact, in the first of February, All of a sudden things change and we go from a good world to a broken world, from a, a, a a good world to a groaning world. In fact, that's literally the way Romans puts it in Romans chapter eight, verse 22. It says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as the pains of childbirth. And so I hear that's a pretty painful process. Right up to the present time, the world, all creation is groaning with the pains of childbirth. That is not a pleasant feeling. What happened? What happened in the story? That we go from good to groaning, from right to wrong, from whole to broken. What happened and how do we get back? to that origin of the way God designed it from the beginning. Well, let's, first of all, we have to identify what the problem is. You can't fix it till you know what the problem is. The problem is, is that we've had a break-in. It's something has broken into, and last week I pointed out that it was actually personified. Sin is crouching at your door. It's personified. The only time in scripture that I know of that it's sin is personified. And so it, sin is crouching. What happened is sin breaks in. To God's perfect order, perfect creation. And all of a sudden, everything begins to go off kelter, begins to tilt, begins to go wrong. And one author said it like this, and I've adopted the phrase. You've heard me say it. I want to kind of give the source to it today. There is a vandalism of shalom that happens. Shalom is going on. That's the way God ordered it. It's the way God made it. It's the way it's supposed to be. And there has been a break in. If you're looking for a good book to read, it's the best book I read in 2020. Here it is. Not the way it's supposed to be by Cornelius Plantington. And he, he makes this statement and he brings up this idea of a vandalism of Shalom. And I want you to hear what he said. He said, because this is, we don't understand shalom. Shalom is the word that when you go into a business in Israel, they'll greet you with shalom. When you walk out of that business, they'll greet you with shalom. It's more than just saying, have a good day. It's more than that. This is what it says. This is what shalom means. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, delight, a rich state of affairs, not an impoverished, a rich state of affairs in which the natural needs are satisfied. So we're not out scoping the world, trying to figure out what our needs are and trying to meet our needs. The natural needs are satisfied. The natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder. Sounds like a utopia, right? Hang on. 
But wonder as the creator and the savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom. In other words, is the way things ought to be. The way God originally designed it is a state of flourishing, a state of wholeness, a state of delight, a state where our needs are met, a state when we're fruitful, a state when we're joyful. That's how God designed it. Breathe that in and then again, remind yourself that when God created it all, he said, it's good. It's very good. That's shalom. We're trying to get back there, okay? Four pages later, Planting says it like this, God hates sin. Not just because it violates the law, his law, but more substantively because it violates shalom. Because it breaks the peace. Because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. God is for shalom. Therefore, he is against sin. If we only understood that whenever we commit this treasonous act against God, the holy, righteous God, the God who put it all in his perfect rhythms and orders and and rightness, that when we do that, it is actually breaking shalom. It is breaking the way God designed it to be. When we rewrite moral codes to our, to our cultural norms now, or whenever we, 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 we do away with God's absolute truth for a relative truth, we are literally tearing down the very fabric of the way God made us. And then what we do, what we do as a culture is we try to fix ourselves. We diagnose ourselves and try to fix ourselves. And we do that through self-help. Now, again, I'm all about reading. I read all the time. I'm constantly reading. I can't get through all the books that I am reading at one time. And, but what out there is the number one category of selling books out there is self-help books. You go back to 2013, and you'll find that 1.4 million self-help books were sold. Not published, sold. Just a few years later, you decide that would have been enough. We'd have all fixed ourselves, right? We're all better. No, we're now buying, in 2019, 4.3 million self-help books. So what, what happens in 2020? They're still tabulating 2020s. Who knows? The, the point is, is that we have realized that shalom, we don't call it that, shalom isn't there anymore. Flourishing isn't there anymore. Joy isn't there anymore. Peace isn't there anymore. So what we try to do is we try to self-help that. Try to fix it ourselves. I like the way John Piper defines what sin is. Because a lot of people just say, well, sin is, uh, it is uh, uh, drinking, smoking, chewing, and running with those who do, or something like that. I didn't murder anybody. This is what sin is. Sin is a suicidal abandonment of joy. Whenever God has a perfect order and a perfect shalom and we rebel against that and go it our own way, it is a suicide to joy in us. Brings it a little bit with a different light than the way the world would like to paint it for us today. What happened that we go from good to groaning, beautiful to broken, wholeness to brokenness. How, how did we get here? Well, again, you look back in Genesis chapter three is when kind of the wheels fall off the bus. 
But to catch you, move you forward really quickly in that review of, uh, of understanding, God's justice has to step in to our brokenness or he's no longer a just God. So he has to be there, but never does his justice come that we don't also see his grace come. It's one of the most incredible synergies that happens here. Don't miss this at a very 30,000 foot level. When you go to Adam and Eve and you go to the garden and you see that brokenness of that blatant disobedience to God, what happens? They run and hide. They run and hide and they cover themselves. They're running from God. But what does God's grace do? God's grace doesn't run from them. God's grace pursues them. When they're running and hiding and covering themselves with fig leaves, God's grace is pursuing them in the cool of the evening. Go back and read Genesis chapter 3. It's a beautiful reality, but you'll miss it. Cain, what happened last week? We talked about Cain. Boy, what a hot mess that guy was. He couldn't learn. God speaks to him once, he ignores him. You know the offering came, he brings an offering and it's a subpar offering. God deserves our first and our best, period. There's no way you can slice or dice it any other way. The very first worship service, the very first offering is given. And what happens is Cain brings a subpar offering. God tells him clearly in the word of God, he tells him, hey, if you do well, you will be well with me. He gives him literally the math, the, the map out, the map out of that, out of that mess. But you remember, God speaks to him three times. The first time, Cain ignores him. The second time, he mocks God, jeers God. I'm not my brother's keeper. The third time, he finally listens to God. What I see with this is that God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances in our lives. That's the grace of God. Now, don't blow past that. Because if you'll notice in Cain's life, he did end up a mess. He ended up in the land of Nod. Where's Nod? Nod means wandering. And he said his pain was too great to bear. He still had a day of truth and consequences, but at least he didn't die. You remember what happened is, again, he brought the bad offering. His brother brought a good offering. He was envious of his brother. He wanted to, he, he, he wanted to uh, his envy turned to rage. His rage turned to murder. And what happens next? Does God kill him? No, you see God's grace again. If you go to Genesis chapter four, verse 15, it says, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark. If you have your Bibles, and again, I'm a paper guy on the Bible side, okay? About 75% of my books are digital nowadays, but I'm still a paper guy when it comes to the Bible. Take it, circle the word in chapter four, verse 15, where it says marked Cain and put the word grace. Because what God did is he said, listen, they won't touch you. I won't let them. Even though he had all the reason in the world to take Cain's life, God's grace provides for him. Listen, if you haven't figured this out yet, God isn't fair. Because grace isn't fair. Thank God for grace. Uh, let me say it again, because that should from the belly and amen, okay? God isn't fair because grace isn't fair. Thank God for grace. 
We call ourselves Grace Point Church because we realize that every single one of us is a like Cain. We ignore God. We mock God. We steer past God. We're like Adam and Eve. We'll run from God. We'll hide from God. We'll cover up our sins ourselves. We'll do exactly as our mothers and our fathers did in the past. We have got to be aware. But the world doesn't end there with Cain and Abel. You go on and you and you read on. In fact, in chapter 5, if you have Genesis open... Chapter 5, verse 1, we're not going to read this chapter, but it kind of gives you a, a genealogy. It's, it, but I want you to notice this, just for a point of reference. This book of gen, generations of Adam. This book of generations of Adam. There's 11 different book of generations in the book of Genesis. Just note it. This is the, the, the closing of the book of Adam, the opening of the book of Noah. And every time it closes, this is the book of this generation. This is the book of 11 different times. Many people believe that, that Genesis, Moses got his history from these various books that are located, 11 of them. You go look them all up. But now go over, uh, if you will, to chapter 6. Because chapter 6 picks it up with a whole new mess. The sons of God show up, okay? The sons of God show up and they start procreating with people. I, I know this is, this is like Hollywood stuff here. I don't even have time to go into this. So here's what I'm going to do. This Wednesday at noontime on our Facebook family page, I'm going to do what's called a lunch and learn. We did these during COVID. I'm going to do another lunch and learn and we're going to talk about the sons of God. All right, we're going to talk about the Nephilim. And so we'll save all of that content uh, till then. If you want to join in, you just join in and listen. And you can ask questions about Genesis of things that maybe I haven't covered. And you're going to hear me say this. I don't know. Okay, so get ready for that. But we go, and even though the Nephilim are being born to the sons of God, and the world is just falling. I mean, it's like going to hell in a handbasket. It is a mess. And God has had it up to here. But we're going to see in a few moments that God's grace shows up even in that moment. I'll save that for a moment later whenever Noah shows up on the scene. But one more time is next week. Lori's going to share with you next week. And she's going to share about the Tower of Babel. And you're going to find whenever in the Tower of Babel, what happens is the people are divided. Racism is born in chapter 11. Nationalism is born in chapter 11. Classism is born in chapter 11. You don't have any of that until chapter 11. What happens is the peoples of the earth become divided. But the grace of God brings us back together in chapter 12 when God appoints one man, Abraham, to raise up an entire nation that's going to bless all the peoples of the earth. And it will be through him that all the nations will be blessed. You're going to constantly see when you read through Genesis that these are not fragmented stories, one off, held off together. These are divine stories connecting us back to God's ultimate story. And we get to be a part of it. So let's look at the Noah story. So what was going on? What was going on? Chapter 6, verse 5. We're going to let chapter 1 and 4. We'll go over that on, on Wednesday at lunchtime. Uh, so, uh, but let's look at, this is the mess that we're dealing with here. Verse, verse five, and the Lord saw, this is what God's looking at. He saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. It was just, what was it like? I mean, give me, give me more, Mike. What was wickedness like? Well, here it is. Every intention and every thought of the heart was only evil. 
What's down in the well will come up in the bucket. What's in the heart will come up in the life. Well, that's exactly what we're going to see. They're thinking it. It's evil. It's dark. It's deceptive. It's 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 vile. It's immoral. It's unethical. Every thought, every intention was in that direction. We're talking. I mean, I can't talk about how bad it is. In fact, you get the emotional response of God, and you get a good picture of it. This is the Lord's response in verse six. And the Lord regretted. The Lord regrets. That he made man on the earth and it grieved him. Don't miss that word grieved. It, he regretted a decision that he made to make humankind. But not only that, he's emotionally bought into this thing. It's not just a fiery amount, amount of fury. This word in, 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 the, in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word as, asab. And it literally means to both have physical pain and emotional sorrow. Physical pain and emotional sorrow. What does that mean? So think about it like this. When your child goes off and rebels, they run off into the darkness. And what are you as a parent? You are physically hurting for your children. And you're emotionally grieving on the inside. And if you've never had that, praise God, you never have that. But if you have that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Here's God, the God who loved and made us and created us. And he is grieving. He is physically hurting and he is emotionally hurting. When you look at Genesis chapter 1 and then you skip over to Genesis chapter 6, you see in, the, in this passage a contrasting parallels. You see, humanity is good in Genesis 1. You see, humanity is evil and thoughts and hearts. Everything is broken and bad in chapter 6. Genesis 1, God's creation pleased him. In Genesis 6, God's creation grieved him. In Genesis 1, the earth was given to humanity. Steward it. Take care of it. In Genesis 6, earth is taken from humanity and it is destroyed. In Genesis 1, God separates the waters from the earth. In Genesis 2, in Genesis 6, he pours the waters out on the earth. So we see this, this almost this destructive element of nature and creation that's happening in the earth. So when we look out there and we see natural disasters, when we look out there and we see cancer, when we look out there and we see heartbreak, don't get mad at God. It's what's happening in a world gone its own way, doing its own evil thoughts. And we're just living in the results of it. And God is at the point now, if you go back to the passage, he grieved in heart so that the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created, verse 7, from the face of the earth, from the, from the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds and heavens. And I am sorry that I made them. Wow. Regret, grief, just going to destroy it all, wipe it all out. But God's grace. Verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Take that word favor if you have your Bibles and circle it. <clears throat> And put beside that grace, because this is the Hebrew word for grace. Grace was given to, to Noah. Noah becomes this person that's favored by God. God shows him favor. What's up? 
He's about to push the atomic explode button, the eject button. He's about to blow this whole thing up. He's a drowned it all. And he's what? He sees this one person and he sees this one person. And he gives this one person grace. Yes. God's not fair. Grace is not fair. Thank God for grace. So what is it that God sees in him? Because God has done this many other times before. In fact, I will say this, in this dark day in which we live, and in the day with cultural uh, mess and political fighting and, and moral uh, absolutes being torn down and so on and so forth, don't need to go through all of that. What, what's God looking for? He's looking for the same thing in the day of Noah as he, today as he was in the day of Noah, as he was whenever in Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, it says this, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. God is looking in every dark alley, looking in every home, looking in every country. He's not going to be partial to one nation. He's not going to be partial to one political party. He's not going to be partial to any ideologies. He's going to be partial to what blamelessness looks like. Wholehearted following him looks like. That is where he is going to lend his support. It's exactly what he does with Noah. When he looks and he sees Noah and he says favor on him. So I want us to answer the question. What was it about Noah that God is raising him up, saving all humanity through this one family? Mind you, because everyone else will be wiped out. What do we learn? Look at verse 9. It says, in the generations of Noah, and Noah was a righteous man, a blameless in his generation. And Noah walked with God. We'll come back to that in a moment. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the earth was corrupt. Notice it says three times the same word in two verses. The world was corrupt. The earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence, not only corrupt, but it was also violent. Verse 12. And he saw that the earth was, and behold, pay attention, listen up here. It was corrupt. It was corrupt to the core. All the flesh had corrupted three different times. He uses the word corruption. So needless to say, they were a mess. And God said to Noah, I will determine to make the end of all the flesh on the earth and filled with violence and with them. And behold, I will destroy them on the earth and make every self, uh, make yourself an ark of gopher wood and make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And I will not have time to give you the whole story of Noah, a three chapters or four chapters devoted in the scriptures to that. But I want us to learn from the life of Noah what hopefully we will see in us, that God will see in us. Oh, to God that he, he would see this in Grace Point in every single one of us. And oh, to God he would see it in Mike McDaniel. That he would see my heart and he would see my hands. The heart that God looks for, when you look at Noah, is the first thing that we got to notice. The heart starts with the heart. Not with the hands, with the heart. Noah is no small figure in the scriptures. 50, 50 different times across nine different books of the, of, of, of the Bible is Noah's name mentioned. So he's no small figure. But this is what it says of him. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. I will tell you this. Noah, I'm going to sum this up, is that Noah had character. 
He had an inner character. He had an outer character. He had an inner man. He had an outer man. And both of those permeating through were full of character. Let me say this. I don't care what political party you're with. I don't care. Again, so many other things. Character matters. Pastors, character matters. Principals, character matters. Presidents, character matters. Parents, character matters. Through and through, his inner man, his outer man were in complete alignment. What happens when we don't? We're watching a video, we're watching a movie, and we don't see things lining up. The audio isn't lining up with the video. What do I do? I turn it off. I don't have time for that. When the audio and the video don't line up, it's gone. Well, so it is with people, but not true of Noah. His inner character. I want you to notice this real quickly in in a quick flyover of his life. Noah was found by God in chapter 6, verse 8. Noah saw, uh, Noah was seen by God and spoken to uh, by God in chapter 7, verse 1. He was remembered by God in chapter 8, verse 1. He was blessed by God in chapter 9, verse 1. You go through all the story and the narrative of, uh, of, of, of Noah and you will find again and again and again and again, there's this deep down relationship between he and God. It's beautiful. It starts with that inner character. Noah was a righteous man. It's the very first words to describe him. He was a righteous man. Chapter 7, verse 1. And I have seen, God had seen him, and that you are righteous. What is it about righteousness? It's so hard to understand what righteousness is. But yet every time you find Noah being mentioned, it mentions him as being righteous. Hundreds of years later in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 4, it refers to he, Daniel, and Job as being righteous individuals. Where does this righteousness come from? Is it what you do? You do enough good things and become righteous? Anytime I think I hear righteous used in, a, in our language today, it's more of a, in a derogatory way. It's like self-righteous, you self-righteous individual, you self-righteous fill in a blank after that. You self-right, but the word righteous is actually a good word. Self-righteous? No. Righteous is good. It's your character, your internal character of who you are. How did I get that character? It's nothing you did. It's something that happened to you. It happens because of what Jesus did. Remember that word? Hope has a name. His name is Jesus. Because of what Jesus did for us, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For, uh, for our sake, he made him, who's him? Jesus Christ, to be sin. Jesus, perfect, became sin, became our sin. Who knew no sin, he was perfect. So that in him, Jesus Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. We get our righteousness because Christ took on our sin, our brokenness, our blame, our shame. Jesus took it on and we get to have his righteousness. It's not something I did. It's everything that Jesus did, period. And that's why Paul, who spent his life trying to be righteous, trying to grow up his own righteousness. He built a resume of self-righteousness. But in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, he says, Have n- and not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. 
If your righteousness is not built on anything other than what Jesus has given to you, imparted to you, imputed to your account, then you don't have righteousness. It's an inner relationship with a holy, awesome, incredible God. Do you know him like that? There was a young lady who was in the last gathering, but a few weeks back, she came up. I was at Guest Central, as I always go after the services, and I was there hanging out, and she came up to me. She didn't say hi. She didn't give me her name. She didn't ask me my name. The first words out of her mouth were, I need God. That was it. And we talked some more. She told me a little bit more of her story. And immediately, what, what, what was she saying? She wasn't giving me doctrinal lines and uh, theology and, and all this kind of stuff. She was just looking at herself, looking at her own life and saying, my life isn't everything it needs to be. I need God. And if you can't with all of your heart say you have God, then you, my friend, need God too. We're talking to her now about her baptism. We're having our next baptism on April 25th. Wouldn't it be a beautiful thing for on that date for her to outwardly declare what has happened inwardly to her life? And that would be true of you as well. It's not, only the, it's not only the inner character that is at work here, it's also the outer character that is at work. It's the outer man, that, 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 the standing he had. See, the righteousness that, that Noah had didn't come from his good works. His good works came from his righteousness. When you, you look at the story in verse 5, and the Lord saw that, excuse me, verse, verse 9, and the generation of Noah, Noah was a righteous man and blameless. Righteousness and blameless. Righteousness had to do with how he was standing with God. Blameless was how he stood with others, his relationship with others. Everyone looked at him and said, his audio and his video line up. He is right on track. He is living what he said he would be living. He is doing the right thing. And notice the sum total of his life. The epitaph over his gravestone might be something like this. Because it goes on to say that he was a righteous man, a blameless man. And Noah walked with God. You can call me a lot of things. You can, you can, when I walk off this stage one day or I go to, push up daisies out in some field someday and, and, and I'm gone from this earth and it will happen. I'm closer to that ending than I am the beginning. I'll promise you that. Um, and you talk about me. You might remember I was tall, gray haired, had two incredible grandkids. Um, you might remember a, a lot of things about Mike likes pie. He talked a lot about pie. You might, you might remember a lot of things like that, but here's what I want you hopefully, hopefully, hopefully will say. Mike walked with God. Mike was righteous. Mike was blameless, and he walked with God. His righteousness wasn't his righteousness. His righteousness came from God. He took all of his sins, and he gave them to Jesus. Jesus gave all of his righteousness to him. His righteousness became his. God's righteousness became Mike's righteousness, and he walked with God. But it's not only our heart that God looks for, it's the hands that God uses. God will use Noah in a beautiful, incredible way. 
But leaders are not just people who point out problems. Leaders are people who come up with solutions to the problems. And you see that with Noah. And God believed that he could trust him. On one hand, he had courage. On the other hand, he had commitment. The courage, he had a faith that had courage and he had a faith that had commitment. And don't miss that. Because whenever you get into this story, what was Noah instructed to do? The very next words, Noah, go out with some gopher wood. What's that? Cypress, most likely. Go out with some cypress and I want you to build a big boat on dry ground. And I'm going to bust open the heavens. The water's going to come down. Everybody's going to be drowned. You're going to be in the boat with a bunch of animals. You're going to have more stench on that boat than you can imagine for a hundred and something days. But you're going to be saved. That is absurd. It had never rained to start with. And who in their right mind builds a boat on dry ground? Number two. That's actually probably should be number one. Except he has courage, faith. He had faith that was incredible, overwhelming. The last time the water is even talked about was in chapter 2, verse 10, and it was a bubbling brook in Eden. And now all of a sudden God's talking about in chapter 6, verse 17, a torrent of water coming down on the earth and saturating everything. He didn't have a schema for that. This doesn't even make sense, God. But how does he respond because his faith was a courage, took him into courageous action. Look at, look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. It says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. This hasn't ever happened before. It's never happened before. But that didn't stop his faith. He's never done it before didn't stop his faith. See, faith takes you. You don't have faith. Faith has you. Faith drives you. Faith is the the mover behind you. If you don't, if you're not moving, you don't have faith. Faith needs to capture you. It captured Noah because of a reverent fear. He constructed an ark, saving households. And when we're talking about a boat, we're not talking about a pontoon where he could fit his kids. And they could just ride off a kayak. Everybody has their own matching kayaks. He's building a ship. Okay. And we're talking about a, a, a million three hundred ninety six thousand cubic feet of ship with layers in there that you could h- hold up to on average. Again, turtles and cats and dogs. Why would you say the cats? I don't know. But it, it, all these different animals, uh, the small ones, and then you got the big giraffes and the elephants. And so you average it out sheep. Okay. We'll call it that. You could hold 125,280 sheep. I mean, that's a lot of poop, right? Let's just be real. It's a lot of feed. That's a lot of something for 120 something days at sea. But that's exactly what they did because his faith was courageous to take him and cause his hands to go to work. He tells him to make an ark in verse 14, make some rooms. He tells him, I will in verse 17, I will in verse 18, you will. If this is his relationship that happens between he and God, I'm going to do this, you're going to do this, I'm going to do this. But what does, what, does, what does Noah do? Well, God send the rain and then I'll build the boat. No, you build the boat, then the rain comes. You have to take the step of faith and build it on dry ground before you can ever expect the rain to come. Faith moves us 
in courageous kinds of ways. Who Noah was shaped what Noah did. He was a righteous, blameless man who walked with God. And so therefore, God, if you want me to do that, I'll do that. Who he was shaped what he did. Number two, his faith is a commitment with grit. It's a courage with, with, uh, 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 it's a courage. Faith is, is, is courageous because he's going to do it, but he's also going to do it with a grit about him. It's not going to stop. Do you know how long it took him to build this ginormous ship? For the sake of time, 100 years. 100 years. If God told me to do something and it took him longer than 100 hours, I'd be questioning whether or not God told me to do it. 100 days? Nah, that's a, that's a quarter of a, a third of the year. What am I talking about, God? 100 years is how long it took him to build the ark. Abraham was told he was going to be a father of a nation, but he didn't have his son for 25 years, 25 years of waiting. And even then it was past, way past childbearing years. Moses, 40 years walking through the wilderness before the people ever made it to the promised land and Moses didn't go himself. Do I have the kind of faith that will have the grit that will make it through and the commitment to make it through? If I have to wait 25, if I have to wait 40 years, if I have to wait 100 years before I see it, before it becomes a reality, Jesus was on this earth knowing what he was going to do when he was absent from his mother and father, lost in the temple. He wasn't lost. The parents had lost him. He was in the temple doing his father's business, but he had to wait 33 years before he would ever make it to the cross. How long will your faith take you? How far will it take you? The Noah faith had grit. In October, when I was 22 years of age, um, I was here in Northwest Arkansas, back on vacation, newly married, and I was at my in-laws' house. I was in their backyard. I can remember it as if it was yesterday. I could take it, if they still live there, I could take you to their backyard where I was sitting in their backyard when I felt like God had called me to come to Grace, or come to Northwest Arkansas and to pastor. 22. I was pastoring my first church, about to go to my second church. God had still not taken us to Africa. But God, you called us back here. Now, Lori didn't have that same feeling, but I felt like God was calling us here. So fast forward to 2001. Nine years from that time, God finally said, go back to Northwest Arkansas and start Grace Point Church. I tell you that story is I waited nine years and it sent like forever. Abraham waited 25 years, Jesus 33 years, Noah 100 years. But his faith didn't waver. How strong, how gritty is your faith? Or have you already given up on a promise that God has given you? Will you bow your heads with me? Noah was far from perfect. If you go on and read in chapter 9, he gets drunk and it's a mess. Nations will rise up and fight against nations from that embarrassing mess. He was not perfect. But he was a man who tried 
with all that was in him to walk with God. He was righteous not because of his righteousness. He was righteous because God made him righteous. He was blameless and he made sure that his life was in line with God's will. And how did he do that? Because he walked by faith. Courageous faith, committed faith. Faith with grit. What's God called you to? If you've never given your life to Jesus, I invite you to follow Jesus today. Give your life to him. Say yes to him. He has busted through all eternity to pursue you. He went to Adam and Eve when they were running from him in the garden. He went to Cain when Cain was mocking him and ignoring him. He went to him again and again and again. He goes to the sons of God, to the Nephilim, and just at the point he's about to wipe the planet Earth out, he sees a man named Noah and he gives him grace. And we're here today because of that. God's grace is amazing. Do you know it? His love is amazing. It's reckless. It will come after you. Have you received it? Father God, please don't let us miss you today. For the busyness of life, the craziness of this world, drowned out the voice of God in Cain's life and in so many others' lives following that, generation after generation, right up to the door of Noah's ark, Lord, if we need to experience justice today, let it be. If we're living in a day of justice, let it be. But Lord, would you also help us to see your grace, that we can walk in your grace as we experience your justice. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.